Amen. Hello, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Thrilled that you're with us today. If you got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to John 17. John 17. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, in a modern English translation, we'd love to gift you one. Makes a world of difference to be able to read what it is that we're talking about. Look at the source material. Try and critique. Is what they're saying here at Hope Church biblical? Are they going off on their own tangents? If so, let us know. Uh, Let me start today, though, by asking you a question. I don't know how often we ask it. I think we just sort of assume the answer to this. But I want to ask it, and I want you to think about it for a second. Is God happy? Think about him. Picture him. Imagine God. And it may be blasphemous. I don't know. But imagine his face. Is there a smile on that face? When you think about him, do you think of God as a happy God? We're always trying to turn you from your excitement about things that you can get from God, whether, whether those are like material blessings, goodness, or they're like relational blessings, family, marriage, love, uh, connecting with other people. Oh, wow, that's great. Yes, we want that from God. And David's talking just now about, I'm not looking for the blessings of God if I don't get the presence of God. That's a really clear, perfect way of describing this. We're, we're trying to go from the things he can give me or do for me or allow me to go after and do to him, his actual presence, his actual being, that, that I want to be in him. The Psalms are are constantly making that same refrain. Better to be a doorman in the house of the Lord than to rule anywhere else. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Okay, but if you teach that, if you actually want people to believe that and you just assume the motivation of that and don't ask yourself what people think about that God and about that presence, you kind of handicap yourself. Because if God is not happy but mad then going to be in his presence is kind of a bummer. I don't know. I have in my head, like, um, it's it's not like a sitcom or a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It's just sort of like all of them in my head. But the the moment when the husband, like, in a hat, and he's got his jacket sort of over and his his sleeves rolled up, and he's, he's excited because he's about to go bowling with the boys, and instead he gets the call and he's got to go home. And when he opens the door, there's his wife standing there in like curlers with a rolling pin and this big frown. Does that resonate for anybody? I don't know if it's a specific Bugs Bunny, a specific like, you know, old sitcom or whatever, but it's like a trope. I want to go bowling with the boys. Beers and bowling. That sounds so, but ah, ah, domestic bliss. Here I come. And you go back home and open the door. And there she is, you know, with the rolling pin, and maybe she's got a cigarette too, and the rollers in her hair, and she's mad. And you're going to go eat dry food in silence, and that's home. That's where you're supposed to be. Do you see, though? If we're saying, no, 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 I want to be with him, I want to be in his presence, I want to be where God is. Oh, really? If he's angry... If he's resentful, do you want to go there? 
And there's an old hymn, William Cowper. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You're adults. You're going to have to develop a, a subtle and maybe a more nuanced understanding of the situation. Is he smiling? Well, it's not a world that you smile at. Can you stand before him and have him gleefully accept you? Well, we've done some stuff that needs dealing with. If you think of the face of God and you imagine it being stern, I think there's some emotional resonance there. I think there's some truth to that expectation. See, biblically, God is not just our Father. He's also the judge of all things. Maybe a better analogy than, you know, the sitcom husband and wife is, is what is it like to be a prisoner in a prison with a warden? And you see that warden, and the warden has a stern face. The warden enforces rules, and he keeps things locked down. But not when he goes home. With his prisoners, he's stern. But when he goes home with his sons, he's happy. And if somehow you broke out of prison and were able to peek through the blinds at the, the dinner time for the warden, he's no longer screaming with a shotgun. He's now carving up the roast beast with his kids, making jokes. There's wine on the table. It's not prison toilet wine. Look that up. It's real like good wine. Why? There's a totally different thing. He's relating to two different groups. When we think about God, I want you to see that while it is true that he is relating to a world that has chosen to leave his goodness and leave his presence, his grace, and he now has to deal with us first as rebels so that he can make us into sons... But he does have to deal with the real situation, the present situation. Now we can start to develop a little bit of nuance. That if your first interaction with God is like cold, heavy, scary, not enticing, well, yeah, we've got some stuff to deal with. What I'm going to hopefully show you, though, is that the way in which he deals with that is by bringing you through his own sacrifice and his own forgiveness straight into that love and that presence, wooing you. That while he may be a warden over a prison, he is a warden who is constantly trying to get you out, forgive you and set you free. And that the day you request it, you go from prisoner to Son, even today. And I got to underline that. I got to say that because if you start talking about hard things or places where the Bible intersects culture at 90 degrees, you have to help people see that God's plan is a plan of goodness, not a plan of badness. He is giving you a gift. He's not trying to shackle you.
And we can say that about gender in particular because it was something from before the fall. It was something that he invented and implanted well before we ever were kicked out of his presence and we ever chose to leave his paradise. He gave us male and female. If I see him as good and giving good gifts and then I start the conversation about gender, well, now I'm in a whole different place. It's not just wishful thinking. Jesus teaches what it is to be God and be brought into God's presence. In John, which is one of the Gospels, it's a place where we get the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. You get to John 14 and you start the sort of upper room moment. It's just Jesus, his disciples, before he's about to go to the cross. He's downloading heavy stuff, big stuff. John 17, he's praying for them. And he's praying to the Father, and he's praying about these guys, these disciples that are representative of the church for all the ages. And he's saying, Father, now I am coming, John 17, verse 13, now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's saying that to be God and to be with God is Joy, and that his purpose is to bring you into that joy, to pull you from the prison into the home, to be in the feast, in the festival, in the light and the love, to be in the joy. It says in verse 26, Father, he's praying, I made them to know your God, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, that's the whole purpose. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm drawing them into. You have loved me. I have loved them. And I'm trying to bring them into the love that we have had from eternity past and trinity. If I can't believe that, if I can't start there, then any conversation I have about any biblical topic is going to be dry. It's going to be uphill. You're going to be pulling me like you pull on a donkey. I don't want to go. Why? Because it's not going to be good. It may be right, but it's not going to be fun. I may be supposed to be there, but I don't want to be there. Ooh. No, the picture here is the picture of God's joy, God's love, that smiling face. And he's trying to bring you into that sovereign smile. It says in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's happy, he's good, and he always has been, and he always will be. And that happiness, that goodness is so full that it spills out over into all of his creation, which he only created for their pleasure in him. It says in Psalm 16.11, my favorite verse in the Bible, Please memorize it. If you don't have any tattoos, maybe don't go for it. But if you're already a tattoo person, this is a good one. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Reset. Reset. 
this whole conversation about gender. If I say, here's what the Bible says a man is, and here's what the Bible says a woman is, and here's how the Bible says they relate, don't begin by assuming that what I'm trying to do is shoot all possible joy in your life. What the Scripture is doing is reasserting God's good plan for you. Today, I'm going to start making the case again for for the positive side of what we're talking about. I'm not just preaching against, I'm preaching something for. I'm saying this is what we do. This is what we should do. This is what we should want. And we set ourselves, and that's why I spent the last two weeks talking about this, we set ourselves into the humble posture of trying to serve our culture and serve our family members and friends with these ideas in a humble, gentle, but truth-telling way. Every person deserves dignity and respect. If they agree with this, if they don't, if they live a lifestyle that God approves of or that God doesn't, every person deserves dignity and respect. So how have we spent the last two weeks looking at Christ in Philippians or, or Paul and his way of evangelism in 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26? Every person is deserving of dignity and respect. And so we have a gift that we're trying to give. We're going to introduce them to this God and his goodness. And if they can get there, if they can start there, then everything else can work out. And if, if we can give them this gift and they can see that it's good, maybe they'll start to look up and see that good giver. But to do that, we do need to talk about what it is positively to be a man or be a woman biblically. And a great good definition of what it is to be a man biblically is given to us by a guy named John Piper. And he says, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Now, you can read a short but book-length expansion on that definition and his paired definition of femininity, of what it is to be a biblical woman, in a very small book called What's the Difference? I'm not a quick reader, and I read it in two sittings. very small book called What's the Difference by John Piper. And he breaks down, word by word almost, but, but section by section of this definition, why he's saying what he's saying and qualifying it and helping to put it into to perspective because it's really difficult to read something like that and have a category of exactly what he means by it. And if something like this is extremely offensive to you, please understand that my posture towards you, if God has any grace in my life, is going to be one of humility and, and willingness to patiently hear you out. Let me be your punching bag. Give me those big blows. Let me hear all your anger and all your frustration about this. Great. I want to be corrected. Help me. Help me see. And then let's talk about biblically what it is saying here. Because this key to masculinity is a biblical definition, meaning that if you're going to accept this definition of masculinity, you have to accept all the other parts of the Scriptures that go with it. Meaning, this is, if this is God's definition, you have to accept the God who has defined masculinity this way. 
And curiously, God gives us a definition of what it is to be a husband or what it is to be a man by showing us how he has acted in the world. Ephesians 5 says in verses 25 to 28, husbands, love your wives. Great. Easy. We're supposed to do that. Everybody kind of has an idea of what that is. You wouldn't have made a husband into a, a man into a husband or a wife, woman into a wife. You wouldn't have gotten married if there wasn't some desire to love or be loved. But he qualifies that word. He qualifies that activity. And he says, as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He might sanctify her, cleansing her with the washing of water with the word. So he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So he's building this profound mystery of husbands like Christ and wives like the church. And he says, I don't have it quoted here, but he says in that that same passage, this mystery is, is profound. But I'm saying that husbands are supposed to treat their wives like Christ treats the church. So if we want to understand what the, that definition of biblical masculinity looks like, we need to look at the one perfect example that we get told to go and look at, which is Jesus. If in that definition we talked about what it is to be biblically masculine is, is to lead, protect, and provide, we want to understand based on Jesus' relationship to us as the church, does he do those things? And then how does he do those things? Well, that's what we're going to do with the remaining time we have. What does it mean to lead? Well, Jesus shows us that he's leading with a certain level of authority. It says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching the people, and he finishes. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he wasn't teaching them as one, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There's some level of, of leadership that comes with authority. But it's an authority to serve. What does Jesus do with his authority? Right before that passage I was telling you about, 14 to 17 of, of John, is John 13. It's really famous, but I don't know that you understand the impact of it. So John, who was there, is writing about it, and he says... During supper, when the devil had already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, and then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Do you want to understand what the Bible says about masculinity or leadership? Great! You can't separate it from this command, this example to serve. To be a leader is to be a servant, biblically. And Jesus shows it perfectly. And God, John gives us all this information. He says that Jesus is about to wash the feet of Judas, who he knew was about to betray him. He was about to wash their feet, knowing that he was the Lord of all and the Father had put all things into his hands. The Lord of 
all on his knees, washing the hands of these peasants. Knowing that he was from heaven, he had stood in the full glory of the presence of God, being God, again, Trinity, and that he's going back to heaven, yet he still became a servant to clean the disciples' feet. So yeah, to be a man biblically is to lead. And that leadership is qualified by this extreme example of service. Also to provide. Now, if you know about the story of Jesus, there's some famous miracles that are out there, walking on water and that kind of stuff. One of them is multiplying bread. There's a point when there's all these people who come out to see Jesus and there's not a lot of time before the sun goes down, they're, they're probably pretty hungry. Jesus is concerned about them walking all the way back without, I don't know, maybe they didn't plan for lunch or whatever. And so he tells the disciples, hey, you feed them. Well, we can't feed them. Would take a year's worth of wages to feed this many people. Jesus said, well, what do you got? They bring some bread. He prays over it, multiplies it. Everybody goes home full and there's a bunch left over. And then he uses that miracle and another one that's very similar to teach them about how he is the bread of life. He finds a woman at the heat of the day at a well trying to bring up some water for her and her family. And he tells her that he would become in her a spring of living water that would bubble up forever in her heart. He went to a wedding that was totally out. They had mismanaged. They hadn't planned right. Maybe the people there were a little thirsty, but they've run out of wine. And Jesus has them fill up water in these big cleansing jars. Oh my gosh, I wish we could preach on this again. We've we've talked about it in the past. It's such a good story. And he turns it into, miraculously, turns it into the greatest wine they've ever tasted. More than they could ever need or drink. He provides for his disciples. He cares for these men during three or so years of just itinerant ministry. But understand what he's really providing He's not just providing health. He's not just providing food. He's not just providing water or, or even just pleasure with this wine. But he is producing life. He's providing for them life. And it's a life that is abundantly found in him. He's not just giving you bread. He's saying that he is the bread. He's not just helping you pull up some water from this deep well of Jacob. He's telling you that he will become for you that water. He is promising not just joy and not just a feast, but he's promising you a marriage. It says in Zephaniah 3, 17 and 18. You never read Zephaniah, but you should read at least these two verses. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. What is he providing? He's not just providing a a steady wage and a, a regular meal. He's providing himself. He's providing singing, dancing, love, a joyful, exuberant love. There's weeks where we do this. The slappy box and the guitar, and it's a little bit more contemplative. I'm not sure the technical term. Probably nailed it. 
There's weeks where it's a little bit more contemplative. And then there's weeks where it's not more contemplative. It's a little bit more Psalm 150 with loud crashing cymbals. And God expresses his love towards us in all kinds of different ways. But right here, he's saying that he will. He will quiet us with his love as he rejoices over us. And then he's going to exult over us. And he's going to exult with loud singing. He's, He's gathering us for a festival, but not just a party, for a wedding. A wedding feast that's got all the joy and all the pleasure, but it's got it focused on the union, the loving now and then forever union. He's going to lead us by serving. He's going to provide us himself, and he's going to protect us. John 18, so this is right after that upper room discourse. They're they're outside. He knows he's about to get arrested. There's this big crowd that comes. Judas leads this big mob to come and arrest Jesus by night. It says in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And the crowd responds, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So, I mean, they stand back up. He says to them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This is to fulfill the word that was spoken, uh, that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have not lost one. You got danger. You got a crowd coming with clubs and torches in the night. And then you got power. Jesus with a word. Dang it. That was supposed to be impressive. Yeah. With a word, knocks them all down. I am he. And they just fall over. And what does he do with all of that power? Protection is still his priority. He knows what's about to happen. That's what it starts. He knows everything that's about to happen to him. He knows he's about to be crucified. And yet his priority is still to protect. Let these men go. I personally am not super concerned about a physical home invasion. But I'm very concerned about the invasion of influence and influencers who bring in foreign ideas to my children, to me. To my wife. It is my calling as a man to protect, as Jesus has modeled in the way that he has come to protect us. Now, as I'm going through it, I'm giving you these examples. I'm trying to do two things at once. One, I'm trying to give you some category for what biblical masculinity is by showing you the perfect. But more importantly, I'm also trying to show you Jesus. I'm trying to teach you Jesus. If you accept Jesus and you're still trying to figure out whether or not this masculinity stuff is is accurate, is is legitimate, let's follow the chain of reason, fine. Because if that happens, then you've got life. I think everything else will fall in. But if it doesn't and you die tomorrow, you still have, if you have Jesus, life. And I also need you to see Jesus and see what he's come to do for you. Not just so that we'll have more manly men, but that will actually come to know the Jesus behind this definition. If I try to live exactly like Jesus did, I'm going to be crushed. 
It's way too hard for me to attain. Even when Jesus rested, he didn't go rest with golf or video games. He would get up real early and he used his rest time to just go pray with God the Father. You give me that as a standard, I'm I'm broken. But he doesn't just give me a model. He gives me himself. He doesn't just give me bread. He becomes bread to me. The question isn't, do you agree with me about masculinity biblically? I hope that you will. The question is, do you know this Jesus? If you've been forgiven by him, then everything else, all this other good you'll see eventually is worth having. But that's the primary question, and that's the question that you've got to start with. Do you know this Jesus? Man, if so, everything else is slowly going to fall into line. I, I hope that if you say yes to that and you've still got questions about what biblical masculinity looks like, you'll give us the opportunity of slowly teaching you as a community. Jump in. Be part of what we're doing here. What you're not going to find is Christ-level perfection when it comes to masculinity. What you are going to find is a bunch of jokers that are all over the spectrum. What's great about that, when I was in seminary, they had a preaching class, and it was called Preaching Practicum, and you heard bad preachers. That's so helpful. If you only ever watch the ones that people like all like and are really great, you're done for, because you can't do that. But if you watch bad preachers, you can slowly see, okay, well, he did that. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And slowly you learn how to communicate. You get around men who are all over that spectrum of biblical masculinity, aiming at that same goal. Slowly you begin to learn what it really looks like to lead by serving, to provide, and to protect. My prayer is that you'll take the time that it takes to just evaluate this stuff. At Hope, we are always here for you. I, I said it and I mean it. I, I intend for you to engage me on this stuff. I'm going to make it easy for you to do that. Because it's just too important for us to give up what it means, not just to be a man, but to see God and to follow him. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would see you first as you are, which is good. Yes, you are holy, and yes, we are sinful. But Lord, if our sinfulness can be forgiven, then stepping into your holiness is to step into joy, pleasure forevermore. Lord, if we see that and we believe that and we engage that, then we can start to engage with every other category you give us for masculinity, femininity, sexuality, identity, love. I pray that we would, Lord, for your good, or our our good and your glory. It's in your holy name I pray. Amen.